0: Hey Rockheads, if you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode
1: 1159. With guest Chris McCord. Recorded Wednesday, June 17th, 2015.
0: Hey, guess what? It's Carl Franklin. And Richard Campbell. And we're here in the Fishbowl at NDC, uh, recording nine shows while we're here. So we got quite a few awesome shows with people you don't hear from that often. How are you doing, man? I'm well. I'm having a good time, you know. It's fun to be at work. We're in the big fishbowl. It is fun to be at work. Yeah. And, then, and we've had lots of fans come by saying hi and yeah. talk about their favorite shows. That's yep. always good. One of them wanted to play my guitar. Oh, yeah. That's a, a very cool. Yeah. yeah. You brought a nice guitar. I haven't seen that one before. Yeah, this is one I bought off uh, Dio. Oh, really? Yeah, this is one of his the, guitars. You're the, the, the barman downstairs. Yeah, Dierman, the bar. Dierman Hannafin. Yeah, he decided he had enough practicing. Okay. And then he was done. So he sold his guitars. Anyway, okay, uh, it's time for a better know a framework. Awesome. Roll the funk music. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, in m- the second installment of my uh, C sharp gotchas. Oh yeah, yeah, which I'm pulling from a thread on Stack Overflow, and you can go there at tinyurl.com/csgotchas. The question was posed what is your favorite or, you know, least favorite? As yeah, as most annoying. What is your most annoying gotcha in C-sharp? And a whole bunch of people replied. And so I'm sort of going through one the ones that I like. One of them is leaking memory because you didn't unhook events. Oh, okay, that sucks. Yeah, so imagine a WPF form with lots of things in it, and somewhere in there you subscribe to an event. And if you don't unsubscribe, the entire form is kept around in memory after being closed and dereferenced. So you have no way, you know, unless you have a weak reference, you can get it back. Right. You have no way to retrieve it and close everything. So. And so it's holding on to it just to pass messages to it that it can't do anything with anymore. Anyway. Right. But here's the thing. Like, if that, if that form is by itself taking up a large chunk of memory, right. all of that memory is being leaked. Right, right. Yeah. So then you create another form instance. That is now being leaked. <laughs> <laughs> So the, and the suck continues. And the suck continues. So this person writes, I believe the issue I saw was creating a dispatcher timer in the WPF form and subscribing to the tick event. And if you don't do a minus equals on the timer, your form leaks. So uh, in the comment here is this one's especially tricky. And this is interesting. I didn't know this. Especially tricky since you created the instance of the dispatcher timer inside the WPF form. So you'd think that it would be an internal reference handled by the garbage collection process. Unfortunately, the dispatcher timer uses a static internal list of subscriptions and services requests on the UI thread. Oh, yeah. So the reference is owned by the static class, therefore doesn't get disposed.
1: Uh, Yeah, not uh, good. That's a good gotcha. I did not know about that.
0: Yeah, it's just one of those things. One of those things. Yeah. Nice one. Yep. So uh, that know it, learn it, hate it, know it, learn it, and hate it. Exactly <laughs> my point. Yeah. Who's talking to us, my friend? Oh, I grabbed a
1: comment off of show, ten eighty, the one we did with Brian Hunter. We talked about Elixir, mm-hmm. which I think was at NDC London. Last it was
0: NDC year. London, and it yeah. blew my mind.
1: Oh, it got so many people excited. And yeah. the comments say that. I mean, even guys like David Rail, who was just on the show, said, "I'm sold. Right. I'm giving Elixir a spin." Yep. But this, I love this particular comment. It's from Kevin Eaton, who says, "I absolutely love this show. I listen to DotNet Rocks in my car and." In my hot tub when relaxing, okay. Mm. <laughs> and as a Java slash Python slash Node geek, I always find these non .NET podcasts very interesting. This one made me jump out of the hot tub, <laughs> run inside, and download the runtime, <laughs> leaving awesome. wet footprints in his trail. <laughs> <laughs> Your your wife is not happy with you. (laughs) (laughs) So far, I am loving Elixir, and I'm shocked I had never come across it in the past. I will be exploring Elixir for a few more future side projects. I want to thank you guys for bringing in such an awesome topic. Keep it up. Yes. You are welcome. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We were blown away, too. I mean, uh, all we did was say to Brian so what you doing? Right. <laughs> he and he's like, yeah. wait till I tell you in his enthusiastic style. It was so great. It was yeah. awesome stuff. Kevin, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media we use, Google+, Facebook, and you'll find us on Twitter at Carl Franklin and at Rich Campbell.
0: Yeah. And that brings us to our guest. Chris McCord is the creator of the Phoenix Framework and author of Metaprogramming Elixir. He spends his days crafting web applications at little lines and teaching others the tools of the trade. He loves community outreach and helping to grow Elixir's wonderful community. Welcome, Chris. Hello. So um, Erlang by itself, not so sexy. Elixir, sexy. (laughs)
2: One could say that. Give, <laughs> yeah. us the, uh,
0: give us the elevator pitch.
2: Okay, so the elevator pitch for Elixir, Phoenix, or... Elixir. In general. Yeah, Elixir. Okay, so Elixir is, it runs on the Erlang virtual machine, and the elevator pitch is uh, Erlang has been around since uh, 1986, mm-hmm. so it's about as old as the uh, first Windows release. So it's been around uh, for decades, literally, and it's running yeah. half the world's telecommunication systems. So right. about... Half the world's traffic goes through Erlang systems if you make a mm-hmm. phone call or use a 3G network. Yep. Um, but historically, Erling's has focused on um, kind of these grittier problems of how do we run half the world's telecommunication systems. Right. So they solve yeah. some it's a very hard problems. significant problems. Oh, yes. And so they've been focusing on these computing problems that no one else has been able to solve in the ways that they've been able to solve them. Right. Um, so I think ease of use and tooling has lagged beyond. Um, some of their priorities. Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, so not their priority. Elixir has come in and said, okay, we've got this amazing virtual machine. Um, it's solving fault tolerance and scalability problems that no one else has been able to solve. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's build a language that really focuses on ease of use, tooling, and some of the modern aspects of, like, metaprogramming mm. that we expect out of a modern programming language. Absolutely. So.
1: My big concern with Erlang, the challenge has always been it's kind of its own operating system and so forth. Like, this is not just
2: a language you drop into studio and go, right? How does no.
1: Elixir make that easier?
2: So, Erlang, you do kind of just drop it in and go. Um, it but you is, boot it, though. Yeah, so I think ease of use as far as getting it installed and running uh, the runtime is just as easy as anything else. Right. Um, it does, some people say it's like its own operating system only because the way it schedules, it's like units of concurrency. Right. Um, so it has its own scheduler, and that's how it's able to achieve these really lightweight proce- – we call them processes. Um, really, they're like really lightweight threads of concurrency. Mm-hmm. Um, and it schedules them on its own. So you're able to um, do – like it's. there's no global pauses for garbage collection. They're all garbage collected right. um, individually. And um, it schedules out and balances uh, CPU and uh, – IO bound processes. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, no JS, if you do, it's great at invented IO, but if you do anything CPU bound, all bets are off on clogging the tube, so to speak. But the Erlang VM is going to schedule all that for you and balance that. So you're never going to block the whole system regardless of what you're doing.
0: So in that regard, it's a lot like an operating system, but does it rely on the underlying operating system for like file access and things like that? Yeah. So it takes care of all that. So it's kind of half an OS. If,
2: you, if yes. you think about it
0: that way you don't it's have to worry app about app.
2: yeah and you don't have to worry about the the internals or the details in it yeah. I mean it's easier to get up and running than you know like a, a Ruby installation in my right. experience
0: right and so so elixir is dynamic and functional like yes. Erlang, and uh, the language itself would you say
2: it's more uh, terse you know yeah, so it 's a lot more terse, and um, you know if you're coming, a lot of people equate it to like a Ruby type syntax, uh, yeah. really that 's like a veneer. Um, and it has a lot of metaprogramming features that uh, allow you to write less code and it's going to you know, generate some code internally for you. But So it's a lot more of a natural syntax. Um, sure. People get caught up on syntax with Erlang quite a bit. Um, I don't mind it, um, but definitely the syntax of Elixir... It makes me happy to write. So I think yeah. you know, people get caught up on syntax and say it doesn't matter, but um, it does matter for a lot of people. So. Sure. What's the dev environment you're using when you're coding in Elixir? Uh, so I, I use OS 10 and deploy to um, some variant of uh, Linux. But um, Elixir has great Windows support. Right. And uh, it's one thing with Phoenix that we're focusing on fantastic Windows support. So everything... You do on Windows, OS X, or Linux You just work on all is three platforms. But yep. is, it, is it like a Sublime editor? Like, what's the sort of happy place for? Okay, so red? I am a uh, Emacs Evil mode user. Yeah, so. hey, <laughs> old he school, likes it bare metal. Yeah, man. so you went on box. Uh, man. Emacs is a better Vim than Vim in my experience. Um, I, Dude, I, are you really gonna do this religious war on the yeah. show? so uh, we don't have to get into that. But yeah, yeah so I'm going to Vim firebombed. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I don't know how to use I don't know how to use Emacs other than quitting. Um, but it's a, it's such a full Vim emulation that nice. it's just a little bit better Vim than Vim. So, that. Okay. Awesome. All
0: right. <laughs> so, you mentioned your Phoenix framework. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So, uh, Phoenix really has a goal to be the framework for the modern web. So, I think the web is evolving and um, I come from a Ruby background and I hit a, a lot of performance issues trying to tackle problems that we face um, you know, on any project that came along. So, right. usually... It's going to involve holding persistent connections to the user, pushing out real-time events. Yep. And that's one thing where um, most modern web frameworks really fall over. Um, Node.js is pretty much one of the few options that people jump to, at least coming from Ruby. But it's the whole WebSocket
1: mentality, yep. right? Although, which has its limitations, but yeah, you can go pretty far with it.
2: You can get pretty far. With that real-time effect, there's nothing to compare. Yeah, so you can make a REST API in most of these frameworks. Um, but even then, under you know, high load, you either have to add a ton of boxes. Yeah.
1: And um, You are taking a one-to-one relationship be- with the client. Every client is exerting a certain
2: amount of resource, at least a couple of sockets, and you only get so many sockets per server. Right. And for me, I want to be able to run you know, millions of connections per server. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot. And that's possible. So you know, <laughs> Phoenix came along where I was running up into performance problems with Ruby, not being able to build the applications I wanted to build. And um, I looked into Erlang, heard about like, WhatsApp running a million yep. Two Tiny million connections little, per server. Right. And yeah, yeah. I said, "Okay, I'm. I thinking, want some of that. Yeah, yeah I, I want some of me, that. <laughs> give me and some of that." I was looking at my Ruby applications, thinking maybe I could get hundreds per server. Right. And yeah. I was like, "This just can't work." So looked at Erlang because I heard of WhatsApp success, and that's when I uh, took a look at, at Elixir as well, and kind of fell in love with language. You pre- were the perfect mm. mix, right? Yeah. Perfect you, mix.
1: You had that Ruby feel, yep. and you valued what Erlang could bring to you. Like you were the candidate.
2: Yes. And um, so I got infatuated with Elixir uh, pre-1.0 and said, I want to write all of my software in this. And not only because it was enjoyable, but because it really tackled these problems I had writing applications. I mean, mm-hmm. scalability was one thing, but, you know, being robust and fault-tolerant was another. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how many times I've told clients, like, we don't know what happened. We restarted the server. Everything works. Like, yeah. that that's normalcy, and it shouldn't be. Yeah, it just um, went away. Yeah, that's, I mean... <laughs> that happens pretty often. You know, I think you can do a lot to make that go away. You can have really great monitoring, but same time, you know, I got these feelings in my stomach that this is not the right way to build applications. You know, that that shouldn't be normalcy. Um, So made Phoenix to give me all of the productive benefits uh, of, you know, my Ruby background, but for a framework that tackles these modern issues, as far as scalability, ease of use, and, you know, having a robust system that can handle millions of users. Is scalability one of these things that just should happen? Like you you don't want to have to think about it? Yes. Well, you have to think about it, but you want to be confident that <laughs> someone else is watching over the system right. and not you at 2 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. And that's going to be, the system should be watching over itself no. so we and should, responding to failure.
0: We should differentiate this between uh, the Phoenix Microsoft Research Project. Yes. You must get this all the time. So um, Just <laughs> yes. give me, let me give the URL to your framework is phoenixframework.org. Just to admit, so that you don't go Google binging and finding the wrong thing. Yes.
2: Yeah. I did. I I did a bunch of name research. I hadn't heard of the Microsoft Research project until one of my family members um, had heard about me building Phoenix, and they Googled it, and they were like, "Oh, that's really great that Microsoft is using it." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I said, "What? Um, oh what? no."
0: <laughs> yeah. So oh. so in a nutshell, you can think of this like you know what ASP.NET does on the IIS side or on the Windows side. Um, but you, leveraging the Erlang VM on the back end,
2: yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: And you're you're trying to fill in all of those things that we're already used to doing web API and controllers and and all of that stuff.
2: What um, what's left to do? Gotcha. So, I mean, the only differentiating factor, like we are a traditional MVC framework, so you would we're great for REST APIs. We're great for form based mm. applications, uh, and then we want to tackle the real-time communication, so we include a JavaScript client that makes it trivial to write uh, real-time applications. Yeah. But we're going beyond HTML. So, you know, I'm, I'm a web developer. I don't think the browser's going anywhere, but mm-hmm. I think that a lot of web developers and web frameworks have had their heads, you know, in the sand with, yeah. like, you know, the web's, browsers are everything. So Phoenix right. is really moving beyond the browser. Um, so for Phoenix 1.0, which is coming in a couple months, uh, we have Android and iOS clients for our real-time layer. Great. So you just drop it in. Uh, the backend code you write for pushing at real-time events and receiving real-time events is the same in the browser and iOS and Android and anything else. So it's pretty easy to write a, uh, we call them Phoenix channels. Channels are our real-time layer. Uh, you can write a channels client in pretty small amount of code. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're going beyond the browser uh, with the understanding that the browser is still great at the sure. b- what the browser does. But mm-hmm. well, we've got to yep. have a system that can handle you know smart toasters, smart yeah, ovens. Yeah, it's about the API. Those don't have browsers, Uh, so we're really tackling um, the entire, um, you know, smart device movement. um, But we're great in the browser too,
0: and all sorts of clients. Yep. So, um, just give us a rundown of the things that we can expect, you know, feature-wise from your traditional. uh, Gotcha. Yeah, that we're used to in a traditional MVC framework.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, the things are there that you expect to be there. Um, we have a really nice routing layer. Uh, we route to controllers. Um, it's very easy to drop in your own uh, kind of middleware, um, mm-hmm. but the, our middleware is kind of just functions, so we don't use the word middleware. Um, we have yeah. generators, like if you're familiar with uh, Rails scaffolding, Right. Um, we have generators for bootstrapping, form-based applications, mm-hmm. uh, as well as JSON APIs, so mm-hmm. we don't just stop there. You can generate a JSON API structure as well. Uh, it's going to generate the database migrations for you and all that. Mm. Uh, we include by default, a, uh, Elixir has a um, library called Ecto, which is going to be like your uh, database abstraction for doing validations, talking to the database. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's included by default. Uh, we include a, uh, we wrap a Node.js uh, build tool called Brunch for asset building. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have Node installed, it just works. Um, and it's just a very small integration, but it supports like SAS and ES6 out of the box. So we're pushing people towards uh, the latest specification of JavaScript. And um, most things you need are, are just there. So we've got like a templating engine uh, that's super fast. And um, it's ready to go. So Ecto is
1: sort of a ODBC or layer for to data stores for elixir
2: yeah so it's a replacement for i don't want to use the word object relational mapper because we don't have objects yes. um but it's going to be everything
1: relations and you're not going to map anything yeah
2: <laughs> there, are, there are relations so you, you relate um, your data but it's um under a different pattern so right. it's not object relational mapper but everything you would use an object relational mapper for you, it gets replaced with the ecto uh, patterns right
1: so it, it gives you that data abstraction yes It lets you eventually persist, that kind of stuff. It
2: lets you persist. Um, One of the nice things, it separates the data and behavior. So you can persist to multiple different locations Mm -hmm. with the same model, which is kind of nice. So people have done, like, master-slave setups um, without having to write. And I just poked
1: into the GitHub repository, and I see MySQL and,
2: Yeah, so it supports uh, Postgres is our default, uh, but it does MySQL Mm -hmm. and then... um, uh, MS SQL as well. Oh, on. really? Yes. Yeah. So it's not... I've got um, nothing bad to say about Postgres. I spent a couple sure. of years on a couple of some projects that needed mm-hmm. Postgres, and I was always impressed by it. Yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic in my experience. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Ecto is really a uh, database abstraction. So we're trying to even do um, NoSQL adapters. Yeah. Um, so Mongo is in development right now, but we're trying to, you know, Everything's been SQL so far, so it's going to be interesting how we can. It's interesting what yeah. has crept in that's really relational from yep. working with different
1: relational databases. Now that you start to work on the document store,
2: what's Plug? Okay, so Plug is our uh, middleware abstraction, um, but but we don't call it middleware. We don't call it middleware. So we call it Plug. Yeah. So if you're coming from <laughs> if you're coming from other backgrounds, um, you're going to have some kind of middleware in your web stack that's going to operate on the request. And uh, for us, it's just function calls. So we're, it's a functional language. Yep. And uh, Plug is really a web server abstraction. And uh, so you can bring different web servers, and it's going to abstract that. You don't have to worry about what web server you're running. But it also lets you just compose functions really easily to apply different rules on the request. So we use it for um, any part of the request lifecycle. is going to go through Plug, and it's just function calls. So if I want to add authentication to my application, I write a function that abides by the Plug specification, which is just a couple uh, arguments and I return the connection. Um, so it's, just it's really a, I mean, a
1: great example because you never want to write authentication authorization yourself. Right. It should be something you drop in that's done correctly and you don't think about it again.
2: Right. And um, it's super like what I, someone quoted me on this and they said that they didn't, they should uh, write a blog post with a title. I said, plug is a uh, beautiful little contract a beautiful oh, little is what i call nice. it because all it is is a function call that accepts the uh, connection which is going to be like uh, the state of the request yeah uh, you modify the connection and you return it and that's a plug um so to write middleware in phoenix is just writing a function that accepts a connection and returns it nice. so that's why we're removing this concept of middleware because it's just you know functional composition right yeah i get that
1: that's awesome and, and yeah it's just getting back to the essence of what you wanted to do yep. there, right? And
2: everything in Phoenix, you don't have to know this, is a plug. So uh, what are there, uh, we have this concept of an endpoint that kind of runs the show, starts the web server, holds your configuration. That... Um, falls off into a router, to, into the routing layer, and then yep. that's going to dis- dispatch to a controller. Well, it turns out endpoints, routers, and controllers are all plugs themselves. Right. Okay. Uh, so it's this really um, uniform level of abstraction that you're operating on, and it's like plugs all the way down. So mm-hmm. it's this very simple. I love it.
1: Yeah. Plugs, all, plugs the way to, all the way down. <laughs> used to be a turtle. Now yeah. it's, it's a, a plug. So a stack of plugs. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't hide
2: that. Uh, you know, I yeah. think a, l- a lot of other web frameworks, you have the middleware layer, and that's like the it's a totally separate area where it's, it's like, secret okay, sauce Yeah, thing. you drop us in, but at the framework level, you rarely think about it. Well, for us, it's, it's all the same. And I think it's this very beautifully simple layer that gives you all the power and what you would expect out of middleware traditionally. Awesome.
0: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Coder Foundry. Coder Foundry is the country's premier .NET bootcamp, teaching students the full stack .NET framework plus AngularJS in just 12 weeks with job placement services available upon graduation. New classes start July 6th. To apply online or learn more, visit coderfoundry.com slash rocks. Uh, I also noticed you
1: did a book called Metaprogramming Elixir. How did that happen? That Yeah, I don't
2: know how that happened. <laughs> 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 yeah, the, uh, the interest in Phoenix um, has been pretty fantastic. So the... The growth of the framework has been a lot faster than I thought it would happen. Right. Same as, you know, kind of pushing myself into Elixir. Um, I gave a talk on metaprogramming. It's only happened in like the past year for you. Yeah, it's been a busy year. Wow. But it's That's been impressive. it's been great. So, yeah, I, the first pl- time I introduced Phoenix publicly was at a talk at Erling Factory, mm-hmm. and it was a talk on metaprogramming Elixir where I had just written the routing layer. Um, which uses some metaprogramming and um, so phoenix was just a baby at that point um, but Dave Thomas happened to attend the talk and said wow, oh, uh, the man was in the room said that was great would you be interested in writing a book and i said that would be awesome wow I'll be done and did he bring a baconator that's the question <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> did he bring you a baconator that's
0: no.
1: the question not that Dave Thomas <laughs> uh, really really <laughs> i get it uh, thanks um, other dave thomas yeah so
2: that that was pretty great and um I really have a passion for riding, so it's kind of like perfect place, perfect time, and I uh, wrote that. Uh, it took me a lot longer than I thought, but yeah. mm. that's come out, and uh, it's, been, it's been a fun ride past year.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, very cool. And it really can't be overstated, the power that you have on the back end, by by hook, hitching to the Elixir wagon. I mean, that sort of power goes way beyond your basic API and into like massively scalable communications infrastructures, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's what drew me in. Um, So you you get the productivity and, you know, most frameworks for me coming from Ruby, I chose the decrease in performance because you can always add servers, right? You just throw hardware at it um, because the developer experience and tooling was so good. Right. Um, But the problem is as soon as you hit the performance wall, Mm. you do the great rewrite or you just spend a lot on servers. Um, (laughs) So the promise and, you know, what we're seeing in reality is with Phoenix, you get just that great experience. Um, it's fun to write. It's you know there's great libraries because Erlang's been around for a long time. We have right. full interop, um, but you can support you know hundreds of thousands of connections. How far have you scaled? Uh, so I have Phoenix in production, but just very small. So, right. um, but I can talk about other people using Phoenix. Uh, Bleacher Report is a relatively mm. popular site. They, mm-hmm. they do a lot of uh, sports um, news, and they were able to I think replace 20 uh, Ruby servers. With uh, one Phoenix server, wow, running, um, and they gave a ta- they gave a, gave a great talk at ElixirConf EU uh, about that experience. And the really cool thing is they were able to. I mean, they hopped on Phoenix. I think it was at zero point six. Mm-hmm. This is like you know six months ago, and were able to um, you know even that early on get this great uh, performance. And the, the cool thing is they were seeing better response times. The Phoenix app talking to the same database with no caching, mm-hmm. we're seeing better response times than their Ruby setup where they with did all the caching, caching the world. Wow. as much as possible. Yeah, so yeah. even removing the caching layer, talking to the database with Phoenix, just because of our concurrency model, they were seeing <laughs> you know way better performance. Remember, 20 when caching was one. supposed to be the fastest way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, you know, so it's so you know a lot of people have told me they're concerned about you know this hype train where it's going to be like you know Node.js where people. Right, um, have run into walls, but really it's living up to the hype so far and I don't try to make claims that... Yeah, that's good. Up, so Scaling
1: is always hard, yep. but here's a set of tools that take scaling pretty seriously and you've had success with it.
2: Yep. And it's 20
1: to
0: 1. That's yep. pretty impressive. That's a
1: big numbers, man. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, talking about cloud help, now I know that if I'm just using platform as a service, I could run this all day long anywhere, but is there any sort of more closely integrated... Applications coming from Azure or AWS or anything like that that support it.
2: So deployment story for us, um, there is no you know de facto um, setup yet. So mm-hmm. it, it'll work on Heroku. Um, the only issue with Heroku is Heroku um, you can't run distributed Elixir, which is kind of oh, our secret sauce. So of, we
0: can sucks. run
2: yeah. Our concurrency model is um, it doesn't matter what uh, machine your program is running on, they all talk to each other. Yeah, right. So a message going to one um, process between them could be on a machine, on a cluster, it doesn't matter if it's the same box. Right. Um, so I am looking at Azure quite a bit because um, the only issue with the concurrency model of distribution is it expects um, that you're on kind of a secure network. So okay. the, um, the security model going back and forth between these nodes um, expects that no one's going to be able to oversee this traffic. So you do have to take some care when deploying a clustered environment that um, things are locked down. And yeah. I've heard people doing that on Azure uh, with the tooling um, quite easily. So that's something I'm, I'm looking into. But still, it is perimeter security you're talking about putting
1: in place. Yep. yep. There's not a whole lot of encryption and, and in- authentication going on between the instances.
2: Right. So there's um, basically you have uh, the thing called a cookie. It's basically a password. So as long as one node can has this password, it's fine. But it goes in the clear over the network. So you right. need to be on you know, a... Got VPN basically, um, yeah, but gonna, they're not too hard, gonna, hard to set up. You're gonna have to encrypt the pipe because the tool itself is yep. not gonna do it. Um, so I am looking at Azure because there, there's been a few blog posts about um, how to set that up. People are running a clustered uh, Elixir environment pretty easily, hmm. and it looked like a lot easier than AWS, which is where I typically uh, deploy to. Um, so that's something I'm looking at. But there's no, um, it, it is easy to deploy, but there's no like uh, tried and true where you, other than Heroku, where you just type a few commands and you're ready. Right. Um, you know, some people are. Deploying with Docker, getting Elixir set up that way, but you know it's kind of there's no de facto standard yet.
1: Yeah, and, and this is we're in this interesting flux time right now. Is what yep. it's going to look like. You'd think that Docker and Elixir instances or Erlang instances would go together really well.
2: Yeah, I think they do. It's it's one of those things. Like I have um, limited time in the day, so like Docker has always been just on the end of my to do list. Right. Um, and people are have written blog posts about how to deploy Phoenix with Docker. Um, and it looks pretty great, but it's mm-hmm. one of those things that um, I will get to soon, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get, get on that Yes, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I was telling, so the interesting thing here, too, is I, I was talking um, just recently with another speaker about, um, I come from Ruby, so these auto-scaling environments, deploying um, where they, you know, they handle everything for you, has always been like the way to go, because with Ruby, as soon as you get that performance, well, you've got to throw hardware at it. Right. right. Um, yeah. But part of me is like, you know, now with the scalability we have and like, you know, WhatsApp, they're running really beefy servers but getting 2 million connections per server. Right. Do, should I spend my time focusing on this, like how do we auto-scale with Phoenix because I don't think people will have to auto-scale that much. No. Yeah. I'm not saying that to like, I really think like if you put moderate hardware at it, um, you probably won't have to add another box for quite a while. Yeah, and and, and,
1: and look at what's happening with VMs in the cloud these days. Like the the biggest VMs, the G class VMs. Right. I'm pretty sure the G stands for Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> G- <Gagoons>. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like they're
2: they're massive, thirty two yep.
1: cores and the Gigantar. terabyte of RAM. And Lord.
2: Yeah. you would probably never need more than that. Most yeah. deployments. When would you ever get past one? Yeah, so what I would recommend uh, is Oh, you know, like, this
0: sounds like that Bill Gates <laughs> quote, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. we'll, we'll come 40, back 10 years later and we'll be like, what yeah. were
2: we thinking? But, okay, so, but you look at, so I'll, I, just to give you a story, WhatsApp, when they were, when they were, I forget how many, I think they had 15 million users. Right. I think they have something like 400 servers now, but they have like a billion users. They're,
1: they're more transactions than, than the whole SMS network of the world.
2: Yeah. Right? yeah, but at the time, they'd got 2 million connections per server. When I first looked into it, I think they had 15 million active users, mm-hmm. um, and they were running 10 servers um, at that's 2 great. million connections per server. So it's one of those things that, and they, I think their box had 24 cores, 96 gigabytes of RAM. Right. Um, so pretty beefy boxes, but. It's not that beefy. Right. You know, that's it's not, not a whole magic machine. Of of, yeah. So part of me thinks that the, the argument of like tiny VMs being able to spin them up on the fly may not be uh, in practice at least with Phoenix and Elixir, all that common. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's hard to know.
0: Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it uh, is. It
1: must be that happy time again.
0: Yeah. It's time for a sassy brunch, complete with a stack of hot buttered plugs sprinkled with syntactic sugar and a tall glass of Elixir on the side. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't forget the bacon. Because wow. everything Benese goes bacon.
1: With bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, see what no I did been there using a bacon acronym lately there needs to be a uh, bacon acronym in, in el- an Elixir somewhere no, just give me five minutes I'll okay, come up with one I'm
2: sure there's a project that's using sure bacon there in some oh there you Everything go there's a
0: product name waiting to happen yeah. Bake, who's going to come up with bacon
2: Yeah. <laughs> you, it you bet be.
0: it's going to be next month we're going to be interviewing somebody about the bacon framework <laughs> actually it's time to give away a Telerik Devcraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club but first let me tell you that Telerik Devcraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. So download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcraft trial. Awesome, buddy. Who's our winner? I don't know. Excellent. (laughs) It's John Gregory. (laughs) Congratulations, John. John Gregory, you just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. A big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. And of course, we like to ask our guests, Chris, if you had $5,000 to spend today on technology, what would you buy? The one server for your two million there connections, <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, I have no idea what I'd buy. Yeah. Maybe a new MacBook Pro. Yeah, okay. You can burn five grand on a MacBook yep. Pro. It's one of the few computers
1: <laughs> that'll take five grand. I don't down need one, easy. but
2: they have like the Force click touchpad now, so that's, yeah. that's worth $5,000, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're nice. Made by Apple, it is. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> no, I Nicest, totally get that.
0: Best machine for running Windows I ever used. Yes. It's hilarious. Yeah. I'm waiting to
1: see if Win 10 actually disrupts this current state of affairs. We start getting some new hardware. that. Uh,
2: yeah, Microsoft is doing some interesting things. It's been a good year for Microsoft.
1: Yeah, yeah for sure. It took them a while, but they're yep. there. Good things happening. Then
0: Let's talk about deployment. So how does one deploy a Phoenix app?
2: Gotcha. So um, easiest way for us, at least initially, is uh, Heroku. Uh, so we've gone to great lengths uh, to make that a good process because you're not running distributed elixir mm-hmm. some things you know won't work like you expect so our right. pub sub layer in phoenix which sits under the channel uh, real-time layer is going to uh, fall back to redis so if you don't have if you're not using distributed elixir like if you're on heroku or you don't want to set it up on your host um, you can add uh, one line config change and you'll use redis instead to handle messages back and forth between your uh, different uh, nodes um, so in that regard it's very easy to set up. Um, we have an advanced deployment guide which is using something called uh, releases which is going to let you do um, hot code uploading. So yeah. being able to push a new version of your code to your running cluster and have yeah. that um, literally do a zero downtime deploy. So it's not like where uh, people will have like Nginx kind of stand up an instance and then hand off requests. It's going. It will let you do literally um, you update your code and that running code says oh my gosh my code changed underneath. Here's my current state and it will pass off the new state to the new running code in one process. Okay. So you can literally go from one running instance of your system to the next. And um, so that's an option for people. Um, the issue is that takes a lot more work because mm. you have to take care to say, um, it does this new version of code uh, match up to my current running of code? And sure. if it doesn't, you have to write a function that can take that and, and migrate it. Right. Um, so we recommend people avoid um, releases initially. If you're just getting into the, the uh, framework, you kind of have to in language, you kind of have to pick your battles on what am I going to learn first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what we recommend is you know go the easy path, and you don't have to do distributed Elixir right away, um, because one thing, even on Heroku, one dyno, um, I think we might like you know ruin Heroku's business model because we did we did some benchmarks against a single Heroku dyno, and we are able to and get they charge you by dyno.
0: Yep. all right, so you're going
2: to have to define what a Heroku dyno okay, is. Okay, sorry. So Heroku, <laughs> basically, it's just an instance. Okay, The marketing term. So it's going to be running an instance of your application that talks to the web. Um, but as any cloud does, you know whether it's a DigitalOcean droplet or a Heroku dyno, they like to make their the marketing team comes up with these words, which mm-hmm. just a running very small instance um, defaults to like five twelve megs of RAM. Yeah. Um, but they, we did but some their VMs. VMs, yeah. There's yeah. just a VM. But they, these guys were first, like even really before
1: EC2 was a thing. Heroku's been around a long time.
2: Yeah. So EC2 um, was a thing, but not as you know, ubiquitous as they are now, yeah. And, um, so they run on top of EC2, and um, so it's basically you're getting an EC2 instance when you're running Heroku, you're but Heroku. they're taking care of they took care of all their value the stuff add on top. is yeah all the stuff on top you and do it's a always, get pushed. It's always been done.
1: Done. a show I wanted to do. We've never done a show just on Heroku, but it's because it's really been kind of Windows hostile. Yes, you historically. Know. Yeah, yep. she's not. That was. An, I didn't know it was a particularly applicable to our audience, but they're one of the originals. They've uh, they've always been there. Yeah,
2: they've been around for for quite a while. I mean, they're pretty young for a uh, business setup. But well, I think speak. you know they went from zero to two hundred million dollar exit in two years. Yeah. Um, mm. you know, Salesforce bought them and literally it was like, hey, we should make it easy to deploy Ruby apps. They started as a Ruby, it was just, you could deploy Rails apps there. Yep. And then you know, they transitioned to um, you know, Java, Node.js, they're, you know, Elixir now, you can run pretty much whatever you want um, in a couple of years and then they, they exited for $200 million. Right. Um, and not a lot has changed, since Salesforce took them on, really, it seems. Not much, but I think that's typical. I think they're targeting enterprise a little more now. Uh, but the cool thing is we did some benchmarks, and on a single 512-meg RAM dyno. dyno, we maxed. Uh, we, we benchmarked from another EC2 instance to the uh, Heroku instance. So they were both running on the same EC2 Under zone. The head, yeah. And uh, we couldn't max CPU. We ran out of network links. We were were benchmarking just HTTP requests. And I think, I forget how many requests per second we got out of it, but we maxed network links before we we max CPU usage. Wow. Which is one of those things that's blown my mind because people ask me like, have you ever tried to add like a really beefy box and benchmark it just to see like, you know, what can, what could a 24 core, 32 core box do? And I'd say like, I don't know how to benchmark that because I don't, I don't have, have enough, access to like, you don't have enough pipe, the right. network. I don't have enough pipe and I don't have beefy enough boxes mm. to push enough. Like yeah. I'd have to buy servers to benchmark a Phoenix application. We, we ran into this exchange um, loop where so we end up
1: buying specialized appliances
2: for crushing network devices. Really? Well yeah, then was, you should, you should, yeah. they're expensive toys. Okay. You should we, show you me sharp. and then let me borrow one of yeah, those yeah. to see yeah. what uh, we could do. Cause yes. I'm curious, but it's, it's been an impressive experience. Just, you know, I, Starting the framework knowing, like, this stuff is possible. And but you're then, eventually going to saturate the NIC, right? That's yep. how
1: ultimately going to... If you're really using CPU efficiently, because CPUs are really, really fast.
0: They just usually don't use them very All well. All right, so right. I, have, exactly. I have a question out of left field, which is, if, if this stuff is so efficient and so uh, great at utilizing the hardware, what is stopping anybody from, you know, running this on a small IoT device? You know, like a... Like a Raspberry Pi or, or something like that where you do have limited resources, yes, but I mean, this stuff is so fast.
2: So nothing. So people are doing it. Um, there's a blog post out there, someone running a Phoenix application. Uh, I think it used 16 megabytes of memory for like the whole app running. And it got, I forget how many requests per second. They benchmarked it like this little pie and it got some super impressive throughput on this little pie. Um, so people are doing it and one cool thing, not a Phoenix app, but they're, um, someone's running, um, an embedded device. They're putting Erlang and Elixir on it mm. and it boots in like two seconds <laughs> and they were at Erling factory. It's like, I, I forget the, the business model, but it's like doing tracking and on, boats take these devices out there and I think it's using GPS and, um, they're doing some kind of tracking and it's running, it's booting Erling and Elixir. On this, I mean, this thing, I, I got hold of my hand, and so it boosts in
0: two seconds. And Richard, a, this gives new meaning to the word server closet. Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine? So how much stuff can you replace in your closet with I just that? pulled
1: up the blog post from called OnFido that talks about using Elixir on a Raspberry Pi 2. And he said, I'm getting 540 requests per second on a $35 piece of hardware utilizing 90% of the CPU at 16 megs of RAM. <laughs> yep, that was the one. Wow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Wow. And here's a standard image. You'd like to download it, take it out for a spin.
0: Uh, that's pretty freaking
1: impressive. Yep. Next man. comes the Elixir cluster on Raspberry Pis. <laughs> well,
2: that I mean, that, Why that's, not? What, yeah. that's what I'm saying. So this auto scaling and the deployment strategy may just be, you know, get a few beefy boxes and Exit for a couple hundred a million dollars. Few, yeah. <laughs> or a few Raspberry pods, <laughs> Yeah, well,
0: That's true. <laughs> you need a few more, but, you know. Oh, that's
2: amazing. Um, Good so Lord. It's been it's been really cool seeing, uh, seeing the stories. And, you know, people, like I said, with the with Bleacher Report, um, people are use, quite a few people are using Phoenix in production already and seeing the reports of, you know, how they were able to take their existing infrastructure and then get way better performance. Yeah. It's been, it's been fun. Just working way more efficiently. Yep. So, I mean,
1: it's still early days for Phoenix. I've got to think.
2: Yeah, it's it's early. So it's um, you're not yet v1. you said. I say. promised v1 in July. So right now I'm saying t- I said two months earlier. Yep. So that would probably put me in the August. But <laughs> okay, a um, couple months. It's um, so June now. It's oh, June we're now. So within two months uh, we should have Phoenix 1.0. We're actually like really surprisingly close. And um, but that's not, we're not going to stop there. So the goal was to get like like Elixir is done, get a 1.0 out where we know we're API stable and let people rely on that, and then add some features. Um, that aren't you know critical to core, um, so we're just getting started. But I think you know it's great. It's a great time to check out now because. Not very much is changing, and whatever does change, we do offer. Uh, there's upgrade guys. You have a lot of contributors. Hmm. Yeah, we have quite a few. Yeah, you know, how big's your core group here? So core team is uh, five people. Okay. And then we. Um, it's great to see. There's a great community effort around yeah, it. it. To, according to GitHub, 146 contributors. Yeah, so, so we get we get pull requests all the time. So nice. Um, it's it's been a great experience from you know the community side as well. So yeah, one of my I favorite mean, the things. The graph
1: is beautiful. This is a healthy project with contributions every day.
2: Yes. You know. And then um, you know, having Jose, uh, creator of uh, Elixir, hop on board as a core contributor was... That's got to be exciting. Was hugely usually, yeah. usually helpful. So he's, he's committed you know, thousands of lines of code and, and the project is you know, very much labor of love for him as well. So it's been, it's been great having his help. and Well, went, and it makes the total for... you know One of the problems we have when we've ever talked about Erlang
1: is just sort of this voodoo aspect of the thing where you've got to think like a telco operator if you want to use this. And you're just bringing traditional, and I'm doing that in air quotes, web development
2: for this unbelievable stack. Yep. And that's one of the most exciting things for me because it's it's cool because it's not going to be, you know, I, I've done a lot of Rails development in the past where um, you start up an app and usually a lot of web frameworks, like, that is your application. Right. Where it, it owns and runs the show. And the cool thing, Erlang gives you these patterns to run distributed applications. Yep. And the cool thing is if you have, like, I was talking about these embedded devices that are using tracking software. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have an existing application, and you want to add a web front end to it. Yeah. Um, you just drop Phoenix in, and it works just as well and productively as it does now, but it's just one component of your greater application. So it's like, it's like microservices, except the problem is solved. You just right. build these applications, as uh, Erlang calls them and Elixir calls them, and you can have them coordinate and start as a group, and they all just play nice together. Nice finishing idea angle on
1: like instrumenting or creating visualizations around an existing erlang app this tool set might be that really easy
2: yeah so we have really great monitoring because um, one of the so the creator of erlang wrote a book uh, called how to you know designing Assist- systems that run forever right so that that kind of mentality is and it's one thing why erlang has probably um, aged a little bit and not added modern features because mm. Um, the deployments historically with telecommunications is like they don't want to change the language mm. because they have these systems that have been running for years and years yeah. and years. Yeah. And, and part of um, that is just leave it alone. It ain't yeah. broken. It works great. Right. So part of the mentality is you know, developing systems that are out there and they're going to run for years and years. So you need a window into your application. So there are great monitoring tools to see you know your application. I talk about this, um, running these different applications together. So you can see at a glance, you get like literally a tree of what parts of my app are running, uh, how much memory are they using, yeah. what are the processes. So there's great tooling built around these things because, just because you can't bring the system down. So if you're trying to debug a system you ha- that's supposed to run forever, you need to have tools that can live monitor yeah, you can insert each individual into part. So the
1: yep. fact that it runs in an airline VM and, and so forth, but then gives you a nice insertation pack in the form of an MVC set yep. of tools, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. So yeah, you could instrument WhatsApp for that matter. Although yeah, who, really. Who yeah. knows where that's ended up now that it's inside the Facebook machine?
0: <laughs> oh, the all I
2: Facebook know is that machine. Messenger
1: got way better once the WhatsApp guy it d- showed it up. It did, didn't it? <laughs> it's funny how that works. And <laughs> um,
2: you know, I think you know when you had Brian on, he probably talked about this, but one of the the coolest things out of that is WhatsApp didn't start with an initial group of Erlang developers, right. When they were starting, so they all were trained as trained to write Erlang, and then when they were running. At the time they were required, I think they had 400 million users. and right. They had 30 engineers. So 30 Erlang Tiny. engineers were supporting 400 million users. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, and the, a lot for a lot of them, this was their first Erlang app. Yeah. So just to show you how you know it's it's not difficult to train people for the ecosystem, and then how well you can get, you know, how how well you can scale a system and support it with how few people. Like to me yeah. that. It blows my mind. Yeah. It's, it's um, almost incomprehensible. Yeah. I mean, if, I, I had a thought the other day, like, it was, like it's kind of worrisome. It's like, okay, 30 people, 400 million users. It's like, are, are we going to run out of programming jobs? Because Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's well, mean, and, and was it, it was $19 billion. Yep. And it was 35 people in the organization total? Something like that. Something like I know that. they
2: had 30, 30 engineers for that big yeah. of an exit. So,
1: yeah, they, the ratio uh, exit. To pers- to personnel is kind of insane.
0: So, can you talk about any companies that are banging on your door? You know, that may have Ruby
2: installation. You know, Slack comes to mind. Gotcha. So, yeah, I think Slack. Um, I thought they were PHP, but oh, maybe they are. I could be wrong. Either way, I've always I've wondered. Like, they probably need to be on something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, we haven't done any like great rewrite or anything, but we do have people that. Um, especially since you know Jose Valim, the creator of Elixir, had such a proximity to the Ruby community, mm-hmm. he wrote. You know, if you if you write a Rails app today, you're using some some part of software he wrote. He was on the Rails core team, but he wrote all kinds of authentication, yeah. um, form building projects. Right. Um, so his proximity has brought a lot of Ruby people over. Um, so we are seeing kind of like a lot of people come from Ruby or. They have a Ruby app and they rewrite it in Elixir and Phoenix. I think mean, you've never programmed in Ruby. The reputation
1: of Ruby is a delightful language for the programmer. Yes. I mean, some, at, sometimes at the sacrifice of the app itself. Yep. But you you've never see a developer unhappy
2: because they're working in Ruby. Typically, right? <laughs> Until they have to try to scale it. Scale yeah. It. For me. Yeah. yeah, yeah so for me, it, that was I was. I mean, I, I was. I, I love Ruby. In mm-hmm. fact, when I was getting into Elixir. Um, I told my wife, like, you know, this is this is the the big this is the next big language for me. Like, I have to, I'm, I'm hooked on this, and she yep. was shocked, you know, she just because she had, she knew how much like I liked Ruby. She's like, she used to call me like a grumpy programmer. I did a lot of PHP before Ruby, and right. then I got into Ruby, and she's like, you're you are actually like very happy at the end of the day. Like, she noticed the difference. <laughs> um, Changed your personality. Yeah. So then she, when she heard me getting into a luxury, she was like, what? That's crazy. Um, so for me, it was like. It was surprising to find something that was so refreshing Mm -hmm. because I was so happy doing Ruby. But it was just like what you said, the development experience was so great, but then hitting the walls and kind of then falling out of, um, you know, falling out of love with it because it's like, okay, it's not tackling the modern issues that we have. It's also a guilt thing. Like, I had a great time, but I didn't make a great product. Right.
0: Um, What do you have for guidance on your website in terms of, you know, getting started Tutorials, videos, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, so we have uh, Getting Started Guides um, that take you through um, kind of all the basics of the framework. So phoenixframework.org is your first stop. Um, And uh, Lance uh, Holverson is the one that wrote the guides, so I have to give him a shout out. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was uh, months of work, uh, so quite a bit of work has gone into the guides. In fact, one of my biggest priorities is um, onboarding new users. Um, So our Getting Started Mm -hmm. experience is you to, uh, you know, mix archive install. So mm-hmm. one line, as long as you have Elixir installed, it's a one line jump to uh, generating a Phoenix application. So it a bootstrap project structure, uh, so you can go from um, zero to a Phoenix app in like 30 seconds. Yeah. We'll install your dependencies, and then you get a welcome to Phoenix App run up and running, and you're ready to go. Get a base so.
1: page working on, it and then start working
2: through yep. routing first. I imagine. Yeah, routing. Yeah. I think is uh, endpoints and routing is probably our first guide, and and um, take you all the way through the basics, and then we want to grow that beyond basics, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd like to put screencasts together soon because I think that consuming right. via video I think is big for people. So we want to have a mix of screencasts sure. and advanced guides uh, soon. Take but we're we're time limited, but it's definitely. Um, there's quite a bit there, so hop on there, and if you have questions, uh, Elixir IRC, um, I pretty much live on there, um, hmm. so um, I'll answer pretty much uh, any question you have. And I'm happy to. All right, so
0: let's talk about state for a minute. Session sure. is obviously has been a big thing for a while, you know, and then we learn to hate it, and then learn to love it again. So how do how does uh, Phoenix deal with session state?
2: So uh, by default, we use. Um, you're talking about like HTTP sessions, right? We'll do, yeah, yeah. We have a cookie store. Um so we're basically as long as you don't have to throw any more than 4 kilobytes in the session okay um we default to a cookie store uh it is encrypted then if you if you're not into that or you mm-hmm. you can basically have a session ID that then talking to a uh, uh elixir process in the background okay that can then track your session all
0: right so you can do that uh,
2: yep. is there any sort of actor
0: model at play here at all, or yeah.
2: so the Erlang and Elixir concurrency model is the actor model. It is except they uh, there was no such thing as the actor model when they wrote it. Uh, so it's funny Interesting. that it happens yeah. to follow the pattern. We yeah. just don't they didn't call it that. Right at the time, um, that's the coolest it was thing. Just is a good idea. <laughs> they needed a language to run on telecom switches. Right, And it had to be distributed because these telecom switches are running. And it had to be fault tolerant because you want a robust infrastructure. And um, they developed around those um, needs. And then language ended up being this highly concurrent, distributed uh, actor model thing. But it wasn't... They weren't like, okay, let's do the actor model. It was, yeah, we need sure. to solve these problems. They've solved the problems. And then, like, naturally... It kind of evolved into these patterns we have today. Right in 1986, That's so different it's, that DevOps is, is always existed. We just didn't happen to call it DevOps, right? We just yeah, right. exactly. call it high functioning
0: teams.
1: Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, so yeah. So their their whole model has mapped into what we need today, which is um, kind of amazing. So the fact that you know 1986, this language came about, and then now in 2015, people are finally starting to realize like, okay, multi core. Like how mm. how do our how are languages going to solve these things? And yeah. um, basically. The answer is okay, not well. Like you know, I, <laughs> but um, we just
1: rediscovered a problem that was solved by another group of people yeah. twenty years
2: ago, decades. So it's thirty just, years ago. Yeah, yeah, almost thirty. Yeah, or yeah. thirty. Yeah. So it's it's just crazy to me that something that these problems have been solved so well so long ago, right? And they weren't even thinking about multicore. There was no multicore then. No. But it turns out it like was just highly concurrent. Yeah, highly concurrent distributed language ends up just working for multicore because yeah. it's almost the same problem. So hear the whole thing. So. Uh, yeah obviously V1
1: is imminent Yep, next couple of months that's got to be your sole focus but I, I can't I got to imagine yep. there's a
2: roadmap past that too beyond 1.0 yeah yeah so beyond 1.0 um, our channel layer is probably the biggest area of work uh, that's the real time layer that's like the the least area of like prior art right, right. like the MVC is pretty pretty be, gnome pretty power. solved right Yeah, you need a JSON API okay here's how you do it mm-hmm. um, but our channel layer is is you know that's why we're wrote Phoenix that's why I'm here and um for me like we have the basics but I want to you know grow that beyond um patterns that people need. So one of the biggest thing is like having um people that are joined to a channel. Yeah. You, you join these things and you can pub sub on them. Yeah. Um right now there's no way to check I mean a lot y- of these elements are pretty well known, right? Asynchronous right. messaging, pub sub yes. model with abstraction. XMPP, for example has solved a lot of these problems. Yeah. So I want to do like channel presence, like who's joined the channel when they leave that you get a notification. Yeah, the hello and the goodbye. Right. Mm-hmm. Right now, you have to write that yourself. It's not much code, but there are these patterns that um, I'm looking into different protocols yeah, that have solved them. That's just straight up plumbing.
1: Yep. It should be there.
2: And figure out um, you know, how, how can we solve these things, how are other people solving them. Mm-hmm. And I think we can do some really, really neat things uh, with channels that um, beyond like with this solid base. So yep. right now, you could, like I said, write a, a real-time application, talk to a browser, iPhone, I, or Android device, uh, but then how can we make that better, and how can we manage these devices talking in, in the best way? Absolutely. So, Chris, is there anything else that you want to bring up before we sign off here? Sure. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Metaprogram Elixir. Check that out at uh, PragProg. And then also I'm uh, taking a couple months off uh, doing some fun deployment to finish Phoenix and get 1.0 out. Uh, so if you have a team that's interested in Elixir and Phoenix, uh, look me up. Very cool. Chris, thanks so much for spending an hour with us. It's been great.
0: Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .Net Rocks.